Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's been a hot minute since we talked about our Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, having a bad day. He's having a bad year. It's first up on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And like I said, Frank LaRose is having a bad year. He was humiliated when voters body slammed issue one, which he wanted to use to take away our power to change the Constitution. Now, the Ohio Supreme Court has unanimously rebuked him in another culture war area. Layla, what is it this time? The backstory here is that a group of folks in a Logan County community were upset last year because a local gay bar called the Olive Tree had ho- had hosted drag shows, put a drag they ended up putting a drag queen on their float in the town's Christmas parade last year. And the costume and the dancing upset a resident who then launched this ballot proposal to ban public drag shows in their town. More specifically, this measure would have classified any drag performance in city limits as an adult cabaret performance, and it would have regulated them in a manner similar to strip clubs by banning them from public spaces or any other location viewable by a minor. But after collecting hundreds of these voter signatures on on the petitions, the backers switched the petition's cover page before submitting them to election officials. The original cover sheet described the proposal as a general ordinance, and they replaced it with a new cover sheet describing the measure as amending an existing zoning ordinance. The rest of the language remained the same. But the Logan County Board of Elections were divided on whether to accept the petitions. They were tied, in fact, with two Republicans voting in favor of accepting them and then the Democrats voting against. So Frank LaRose got to cast the deciding vote and he voted in favor of it, arguing that the switch of the cover sheets was legally insignificant. But the Ohio Supreme Court decided this week that switching the cover sheet, in fact, violated state law, which says the the text and title of a petition signed by voters seeking a ballot issue must be the same as the petition submitted to election officials. So in this unanimous decision, the Supreme Court kind of smacks them around a little bit, saying that, quote, Secretary LaRose and the Board of Elections abused their discretion and disregarded the law in overruling relators' protest. This is a dangerous moment for democracy in Ohio. Yeah, it's a tiny little county. It's a small issue, but it's not. This is so significant. That's why we're talking about it first. First, I mean, this is absolutely illegal. When people sign the petition, the language on it is what matters. And you can't change it after you get signatures. That's absolutely illegal, as the Supreme Court said. The fact that two Republicans on that elections board were okay with it tells you they don't care about the law. They care about culture war party nonsense. The fact that our secretary of state, the guy we vote for to preserve the rules of elections, went with them, tells you he has no responsibility anymore to the Constitution of Ohio. He is voting 100 percent along culture war party lines, and he's the secretary of state. It's abominable what he did here. 
This is a no-brainer. He should have said, of course not. Of course we can't do that. But he went with the culture war because he wants to run for the Senate and he thinks he'll get campaign donations. Thank heavens for the Supreme Court unanimously saying, what the hell's wrong with you? It's the law. You can't do this. This is a bad move for Ohio because our secretary of state is no longer doing his job. And we have worried about the Supreme Court and the balance there and how they would play into culture war issues. And this uh, this is actually quite heartening to see how this shook out. It's heartening that they did their job. It's incredibly disheartening that the secretary of state, man, his Mm -hmm. chief job is to make sure the elections process works. And he's completely violating his duty to play these stupid games. Man, I hope this guy just loses big because if he gets any more elected offices, Ohio is in trouble. He's no longer accountable to the voters. He's just going pure party culture war nonsense and shame on him. Well, and there's this there's this thought that that drag shows are adult cabaret or body. Uh, my oldest and dearest friend is a drag queen in California, and she sings show tunes. I mean, you know, they're trying to paint it as almost a pornographic thing, and it's not. Well, you're right. The the overall thing here is let's vilify this tiny group of people for political gain. That's what Frank LaRose is doing. It's astounding to me that when he looked at this, he did not do the right thing because it's not even close. This is as binary a decision as there is. Mm. What they were doing was wrong. As secretary of state, he should have done the right thing and said, of course not. And it took the Supreme Court, unanimous Supreme Court, consider that to rebuke him and say, cut it out. You are listening to Today in Ohio. With Israel declaring war after the unprecedented weekend attack by Hamas, one that killed civilians and targeted others as hostages, we asked for thoughts of Northeast Ohio supporters of both Israel and Palestine. Laura, what did we hear? This story is horrifying. The attacks at the concert in kibbutzes in Israel stunned the world. I mean, we're talking about young people kidnapped, whole families murdered, and then retaliatory airstrikes on Gaza, which is incredibly heavily populated. And we're talking at least 1,600 deaths so far. That's what I saw yesterday. So um, a a rabbi at the Anshi Chesed Fairmont Temple said that most people who are Jewish likely know someone whose life has either been upended by this attack or will soon. He said, the Jewish people you know are not okay right now. This is not status quo. This is not turbulence. This is horrible wreckage. And if you're on social media, you see all of these pictures of families being posted by their loved ones saying they're looking for them. And somebody called it Israel's 9-11. I I think everyone was stunned and it's horrific. And the people we talked to in Cleveland, there was rallies last night, both at five o'clock, one for one on the west side and one on the east side. And both communities are suggesting they're at the mercy of politics and this escalating extremism that's drowning out the voices of people who really want peace. And they all say, you know, a human life is a human life. And it's a whole, it's, it's horrific to watch because I think we're, it's, it's not going to end anytime soon. It feels like it's ratcheting up. Yeah. Although there's been a long conflict, but this is unprecedented to go into a concert and 
one, shoot people at point blank range and then haul away youths to hold as hostages. Now they're threatening to kill them. Right. That's not that's not the normal nitty's conflict. I mean, right. you're getting that's acts of terrorism. You don't do that. You don't go get non-combatants and drag them back and then threaten to kill them. It's very ugly. Uh, and you know, Israel has declared war. They've gone in on the ground. Um, there's going to be nonstop carnage here. Right. But this was a terrorist invasion, and Israel has to deal with that. I mean, imagine if something like that happened in this country. How would we respond to it? It's You're right. It's horrifying. Uh, I just don't understand what the end game was for Hamas. I mean, this is the, the, the reaction is entirely predictable, and it's going to be very ugly. I guess what we were hearing from some of the Palestinians in Cleveland is they don't favor Hamas. They feel like no. they're the, the, the Palestine's being subjugated by a terrorist group and want to see that end. Right. Exactly. And I think you're right. This, this just shook the entire country. We've been used to one-off attacks and it's not like it's something anyone wants or wants to live with. Right. But there's always that simmering conflict and now it's like erupted. This is the biggest death toll since 1973 in Israel. So that's my entire lifetime. And we have about 80,000 Jews who live in Cleveland, 25,000 Palestinians. Those are bigger, bigger number of Palestinians than I had realized. So there are a lot of connections to what's going on here. Well, and it poses a big threat to Israel because other states that are anti-Israel will look at this as a chance possibly to take advantage of the vulnerability. So you, you do see much of the world rallying to Israel's defense because of the way this went down. Mm -hmm. But man, that's a powder keg. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have new maps. We have a lawsuit to block the new maps. Lisa, what's next in Ohio for the legislative districts for the state house? And how much of a chance is there that we'll wrap this all up in time for the primary election in the spring? Yeah, I think that's the issue. Time's a waste in here. So the Ohio Supreme Court is considering three legal challenges to the legislative maps that were passed unanimously by the redistricting commission. Um, the um, I'm sorry. So Secretary of State Frank LaRose says that September 22 was the deadline that would have allowed six weeks to go through the courts, and but the maps weren't passed until the 29th of September, so they lost a week there. He says the redistricting fight needs to be resolved by October 29th because that's counting backward from December 20th. That's the candidate filing deadline for the March primary. Candidates have until November 20th to move to a new district. Before then, county elections officials have to have two weeks to update voter registration inf information to reflect the new district line. So yeah, we're kind of running out of time. It's still unclear how long these maps are good for as well. We don't know that question. Is it eight years because it was unanimous vote or is it just two years? I wish the people that were fighting this would redirect their energy to getting the system changed next November. The last thing we need is another primary election that might get delayed because we don't have it together. And th th if we change the law next November, this is a, a one-term set of maps. They're, they're better than people thought they could be. It's just putting us on the verge of another election with all the unknowns. What is the point of that? 
I And this was kind of a chilling statement by the House Majority Floor Leader, Bill Seitz, the Republican from Cincinnati. He said, quote, we get the new Supreme Court to weigh in and hopefully eradicate the ridiculous decisions of the Maureen O'Connor Court. And Republicans are claiming that, you know, you can't draw maps to give Democrats an advantage that they're demanding without breaking rules about limits on dividing counties and cities. Yeah, it's a frightening statement by Bill Seitz. Always about what's right, not what's partisan. Ha, ha, ha. It shouldn't be about the personalities on the court. It should be what's right and wrong. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and our very own Victor Ruiz, a community member of our editorial board, is taking some dramatic steps to close the education gap students face in Ohio. Layla, how is he doing that? Well, since 2010, Victor has served as the executive director of the nonprofit Esperanza, and this is an organization that was founded in 1983, and it began as a community project on Cleveland's west side to improve the educational opportunities for Hispanics by recognizing academic achievement through scholarships. And they started with just one scholarship. And now they award over 100 college scholarships each year, thanks to a bunch of donors who generously give to this program. But there's a lot more to Esperanza than scholarships. They provide after-school tutoring, summer enrichment programs, college prep classes. They have an adult learner program that provides English as a second language classes and citizenship classes and GED prep to adult immigrants in Cleveland. Then they have this Hispanic Youth Leadership Program for high school students, which gives uh, leadership training and community service opportunities and college preparation. And they match Hispanic students with college-educated mentors. They have a program that supports Hispanic students who are planning to attend college by providing financial aid counseling and academic advising. And they offer a very cool science, tech, engineering, arts, and math summer camp for students. So Victor told Zach Smith that the Latinx community really needs more institutions and systems to provide translated materials, Spanish language interpretation, more Hispanic staff, and and to educate their employees, including leadership, on the needs of the Hispanic community. And he also said he would like to see more Latinx leaders uh, hold top management positions in the corporate world so that they can have greater impact on decision making. He's a guy that's been doing the work, walking the walk, talking the talk for a long time now, showing up every day to make a difference. I'm glad he's on the editorial board. And we know, Lisa and you, Layla, and I, from serving with him, how passionate he is uh, about various issues in Cleveland and the way he speaks up for them. So I'm glad we did that story. It was good to give him some attention. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this is gross. Reporter Pete Krause explained in a story, while Laura has to forego swimming in Lake Erie on occasion after it rains, Laura lets to lay out the gritty details. Because raw sewage overflows in the lake every time we get a huge rain in this giant tunnel. It happened three times this summer, and even with the $3 billion that the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is spending to upgrade the system, it's not going to end completely probably ever, because it's still needed as a safety valve in case the westerly um, sewer plant is on the verge of being overwhelmed during the storm. In the 70s, that happened dozens of times a year. Now we're down to single digits, but it would be prohibitively expensive to fix it enough that we don't need it. The, the This is a case where a picture is worth a thousand words. Running with Pete's story was a picture of that gigantic iron flap 
that opens to let the sewage out. There's a woman standing in front of it. She's dwarfed by the size of this thing. And it that, that just gives you a degree of how much of this crap literally is coming out, <laughs> running down the beach. One of the grossest details in there is after the storm's over, the sewer district has to go down to quote unquote, repair the beach. Yeah. I mean, we've all cleaned up beaches, right? And seen like absolutely disgusting things on like, you know, and you're like, how does this get on a beach? Right. Why is there this plastic applicator or a razor? Right. And it could just come from this. <laughs> the the one line in the story that I didn't quite get, they said they had considered running that mm-hmm. that big metal thing, running a pipe from it deep out into the lake yeah. to get the stuff away from the beach. But they decided against it because the stuff would come back in. I don't quite get that. I mean, it, even if it came back in, it would be so diluted as to not create the huge E. coli problem in the water. I bet it was more about the cost of doing it. Well, I do think that would be really expensive, but you're still polluting the lake. And, you know, even if you're 2,000 feet out, I guess that's a mile, um, it could wash no, right back no, up. 5, no, 5,000. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> 2,000 yards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Early morning. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I that, that that one threw me because I it would be diluted. They would have to close the beach less. You'd probably see less gross things floating in the water. Anyway, it's a good story by Pete that really puts into perspective what we talk about in in kind of antiseptic terms when it happens, and there's nothing antiseptic about it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked Monday about the auto workers' strike, which is cutting into manufacturing temporarily, but we also took a look at how big of a role manufacturing plays in Ohio's economy. Lisa, it used to be big. What did we learn? It's We're still kind of a big player. And in recognition of Manufacturing Day 2023, which was just last Friday, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer looked at trends over the last decade in our area. It's still one of Ohio's top industries. The Ohio Manufacturing Association says that 17.9% of Ohio's gross domestic product in private industry is due to manufacturing. It's a $44 billion annual payroll, $51 billion in exported products to 211 countries. In 2022, it was 684 jobs, and that's continuing an upward trend since 2020 when we hit a 10-year low of 653,000 manufacturing jobs in the state. So we're not quite back to pre-pandemic numbers. The latest figures on manufacturing jobs was from August. That's 688,800 jobs in the sector. You And you don't see it as much unless you drive around a lot and you pass the places where it happens. We still have some pretty large factory settings that are making things in Ohio. It's just not out front a lot of a lot of times. It's interesting to see that it's still a pretty high percentage. Right. And in Cleveland, um, Cleveland is responsible for 17 percent of those manufacturing jobs, about 117,000 jobs on average every year. And we are number three in auto jobs. We're only behind Michigan and Indiana. Most of the jobs are in the parts manufacturing here in Ohio, about 86,000. You got to hope this strike ends soon. And it does look like the people in the auto workers union are going to get some decent increases. You're listening to Today in Ohio.
All right, Layla, what did the celebrities at Forbes 30 Under 30 have to say to the big crowd that showed up Monday? Yeah, so this is a four-day event, and so far on day one, these uh, entrepreneurs and young professionals heard messages from actor Rain Wilson, Kendall Jenner, and, and uh, other celebrities and trailblazers. And these attendees filled public auditorium to hear these panels, and there there weren't just celebrities. Of course, there was also a self-made billionaire and CEOs of a plant-based meat company. And the event is also going to include industry-focused excursions, local culinary experiences, a bar crawl, and lots of networking. So really something for everyone, it seems. And Rain Wilson, the actor who's best known for playing Dwight Schrute at The Office, talked to the attendees about exploring religion and spirituality as a way to find meaning and peace, especially when it comes to your career and your mental health. And then Kendall Jenner, uh, in her panel, which was called From Model to Mogul, talked about ignoring social media and being an introvert and being an authentic person, even while living a highly publicized life. It sounds like these these uh, panelists got very personal and kind of vulnerable with this audience. Um, I, I think, I mean, I would have loved to, to, to listen to this. I, I really thought that this, I kind of eye rolled when I saw the list of celebrities, but reading this story by Sean McDonald, I, I was, I wish I had gone. <laughs> really? You got $3,000 you could have paid to go? <laughs> Well, this employer is not paying your way. <laughs> Even if I write a column about it, Chris? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I still can't get over what they're charging people. I know, it's insane, to, uh, right? To pay for it. But I guess it's four days. You break it over the four days. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this one's interesting. We talked Monday about a lot of the reasons that a participatory budgeting proposal on the Cleveland ballot is likely a bad idea. But later, we heard from one of the proposal's most ardent supporters. Lisa, did she offer any insights that makes this seem like a workable idea? I think not as far as the editorial board was concerned, and I think we were kind of skeptical. Now, she, Molly Martin is her name, and she's kind of like the head person for the People's Budget Amendment, issue 38 on the November ballot. Very passionate woman. She's, you know, all into civic engagement, but I think some of the biggest questions that we had, especially Layla and myself, it's like, you know, you're trying to enfranchise a group that's been disenfranchised for a long time. Are their voices going to be heard in this new system? I loved Molly's passion. I loved her preamble about why she thought this was important. And and there probably is a path to doing something like she wants to do. But in the end, the proposal they have, the actual charter amendment, does seem clunky and unworkable. It creates a bureaucracy that doesn't seem like it would have accountability. But, she, I mean, she was just so ardent. Very in passionate. Making the case for it. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of questions. I mean, the, the 11 members of this uh, participatory budgeting commission, would some would be appointed by city officials. So is there going to be some patronage there? Um, also, the civic engagement. Again, how do you reach these people? You know, the single mom in Glenville who's worried that she's going to get ev evicted or whatever. So these people don't participate in the process. They don't vote. She's really hoping to engage people and get them to vote. And also, it's unclear as the, the selection process. How do they select? Do they do small ones, big ones? You know, what's the end goal here? The shame of it is they came forth with a proposal that wouldn't have been a charter change to get city council to put in 
a fairly small amount of money to experiment with this to see if people would get involved and if it would energize the electorate because voter turnout is bad. And council was just so unreasonable in getting offended. It's our job to budget. You, you, you want to budget? Get elected. So they put this proposal together and it feels like they did it almost as leverage. Like, okay, you don't make the deal with us. We got this proposal, which is pretty bad and, you know, entails a lot of money. So make the deal. And they still wouldn't compromise. And now we head to the ballot with what seems like a very unworkable idea. That's going to be enshrined in the city charter. So 14 million bucks a year, which is about 2% of the city's budget, but that's still a big amount of money. And as we discussed yesterday, some of the things that people will be requesting, the city will be doing anyway. Well, Laura, you were in the meeting. Did it make a dent on you? Yeah, I think uh, what what Lisa just said was one of the things that I kind of um, ruminated on after the meeting was the fact that so people will submit their ideas to this 11 person commission uh, that will decide which ones rise to the level of letting voters, you know, letting the community vote upon them. And so some of that involves coordination with what the city Already, you know what what the city might already be working on, and if that's the case, then we're talking about projects that probably would have gotten done anyway, uh, that were maybe already in the budget. And so, uh, and and I guess that does alleviate some of the the hit on the budget that we've been discussing. But on the other hand, it feels kind of like it's the illusion of of community engagement and mm-hmm. and uh, not quite the real thing. Um, and and really just adding a layer of bureaucracy to the entire process to achieve that. Yeah, yeah. I, there there's so many elements of this that that just make it a downer. I, and people don't remember, I guess, but during most of the Frank Jackson administration, the budget was challenged. They did not get enough money every year to pay the bills for that year. And the way they balance their budget is by saving money during the year and carrying that forward. And and so they didn't have a balanced budget until the income tax was increased a few years ago. That could happen again. Money troubles for cities do happen. And if you have this in the charter, it's automatically 2% of the money going out the door at a time. Can you imagine if Frank Jackson had that extra onus to deal with every year is okay. Yeah. And I lose 2% more of the money. To to push back on that just a bit though, one thing that really did resonate with me that she talked about was how it does force the city to make some decisions about what the city's priorities are, especially when it comes to things like funding stadiums. And that that's one of those issues that sticks in people's craw. Every time it comes up, the public hates paying for these stadiums that, that support billionaire team owners. And uh, and time and again, the city has kind of, you know, bent over backwards to accommodate the wishes of the teams. And okay. so, so I do think, I do appreciate that this does say, well, you're saying you don't have the money, but the next time one of these sports teams comes to the city for, for cash, say no, because you have to fund participatory budgeting. But the way you do that, is to throw out your council and elect council members that represent your interests. I mean, that's the system we have. The council members are elected from wards. And if you feel strongly that they're making bad decisions, you're supposed to run them out of there. 
That's the referendum that people have. This is kind of an unaccountable group. Once they have the the go, they're yeah. But by then, you've already made the stadium deal. You've already seen your your elected officials' true colors, and it's played out, and you, the money's committed, and then you have to run them out of office, and it's too uh, late. You, you, you're su- you're presupposing that they would take stadium money and put it into this. The the chances are they would do the stadium and cut elsewhere. But that's what you elect the council to do. I mean, there there's. There's just problems with this being in the charter. I wish they would have gone with the program that was originally proposed to see yeah. how it went. Uh, it's just we got a closed-minded city council president on this, and they were hardline against it. If I, I think could just make – no, go ahead, Laura. I thought it was interesting that she said when they took that to the petitions to civilian citizens, they were like, why only 2%? Because I don't think – People are thinking that 2% sounds like a lot of the budget and $14 million obviously isn't a huge chunk. But when you're operating a city like Cleveland and, you know, you're losing income tax money because people aren't coming downtown to work anymore, it is a big deal. Yeah. um, Betsy Sullivan, our opinion uh, director, she asked the question and said, well, you know, we've seen all kinds of misfunction with the Citizens Police Commission with infighting with the new members. And she said, would that happen in this group as well? And Molly said she didn't think they were the same thing, but they kind of are. I, You know, it's been trying to herd cats with the Citizens Police Commission. Is that going to be the same dysfunction with this board? Yeah, it's a good point. And and she tried to answer it saying there was a lot more history there, but that's the, the problem you could have as a renegade. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura's got a technical issue, so we're going to have to end it here. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back talking about the news on Wednesday.